Hello, and welcome to Higher Voltage, a podcast that explores the ins and outs of higher education marketing and touches on all aspects of the business of higher education. As always, my name is Heather Dotchell. You have most recently encountered me leading the marketing and communications teams at two Philadelphia area colleges. We have a slightly different kind of episode today, and I couldn't be more excited to share it with you. Dr. Josie Alquist, higher ed digital communications renaissance woman, seriously, she does it all, recently released a fantastic book, Digital Leadership in Higher Education, Purposeful Social Media in a Connected World. Furthermore, we are not only talking about the amazing resource she has created, but also conversing with Dr. Walter Kimbrough, president of Dillard University and leading executive voice on social media. Thank you both for coming to Higher Voltage today. I can't wait to jump into this conversation. Josie, can you give our audience a nutshell bio of how you came to love higher education and make it your career calling? Well, I think if I was to scroll back the minute I stepped on a college campus, I was hooked, uh, absolutely loving the environment. Obviously, when I was a college student, it was probably for different reasons. And then I got involved and realized the transformational uh, opportunities. Um, I worked on college campuses for 12 years and always had that uh, bug to get my doctorate. And it was in the doctorate where I discovered these opportunities to research social media. I was an early adopter, let's say, in higher ed to social media and applying it to student engagement. Sometimes back then you were definitely seen as a troublemaker (laughs) if you were so quick to jump to Facebook or to Twitter. Um, And it's just been such a cool journey to be able to connect opportunities with social media with opportunities in higher education. Walter, similar question. What was your path to your current role at Dillard? I uh, began college with this idea that I was going to be a veterinarian. And um, I went to a magnet high school in Atlanta for math and science. So, I mean, I did science fairs. I was really all into it. Uh, And then got to University of Georgia. Um, The plan was to get in vet school after three years. It's usually four years undergrad, four years vet school. I got in after three and then once I got in early, I was like, oh, this is horrible. That's not what I really want to do. Um, but, you know, as an undergrad, I was very involved, particularly within my fraternity. And I had a national leadership position. So I was at one of our national meetings and, you know, I talked to a college president who was at Alcorn State in Mississippi. And I said, you know, I want to be a veterinarian, but at some point in time, I want to do something else. And maybe I want to be a college president. So that was sort of the bug that was planted. I was 21. Um, and so once I left veterinary school, I went on and graduated with a degree in biology uh, from the College of Agriculture, which is just funny to me now, but really had a chance to start pursuing that higher education path and particularly working in student affairs. So um, that was my goal, even though knowing that when I started studying the presidency, that a lot of presidents came out of the hard sciences. And even for a minute, I flirted with that idea. After I finished my master's, I went to North Carolina State to do a PhD in animal science. And I I was there a month and I was sitting in a microbiology class and the guy was going on and on. He was having a good time. He was like, you should love this. And I was like, oh, no, I'm not doing this anymore. So I just dropped out of the program and really just focused on student affairs and higher ed. And I said, look, if I don't become a president because only 4% of presidents come from student affairs, I'm like, that's fine. I, I found what I love doing. Um, but it, you know, it worked out. And so, you know, I'm finishing 16 years as a president now. I had no idea that you wanted to be a vet at first. That's yep. awesome. Yep. So yeah, I had all kind of, 
I bred rabbits for science projects. I had gerbils. Um, my kids finally, we got a dog during the pandemic. So we have a French bulldog, which, you know, of course, I'm loving that, but they are too. So I was also born and bred through student affairs. So, and I got a couple dogs in the background if you haven't already heard them. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, before we jump into the topic at hand, I'd like to remind our audience that we are brought to you by eCity Interactive. For more than 20 years, eCity has been creating marketing strategies, websites, and digital experiences for higher ed institutions, large and small. Inspired by challenge and proven by results, eCity can help you solve the greatest challenges facing your institution today. So let's get into it. Josie, let's talk about your book. I would like to know the genesis, the evolution. I'd like you to touch upon the format because it's it's not just straight narrative. Um, your incredibly wide array of participants and case studies. Go, let us know all about it. <laughs> Ready, go. So the, I call it like the first baby beta research um, that the book was born from was in 2014, where I convinced my um, doc advisor that I wanted to do more research than just my dissertation. And um, well, of course she thought I was crazy, but I also was just very curious because at the time there were a number, especially in student affairs, vice presidents who were jumping onto Twitter and students were, from what I could observe, were very excited to have them there, which I worked at many other institutions where vice presidents not only were viscerally reactive to Twitter, but I also don't think students would probably receive them on some social media platforms. So as a baby researcher, I wanted to know why. And so I, I observed their Twitter accounts for six months. I interviewed them to find what was the start of a framework that the book is built around. So as in any good research, because there's plenty of books you can pick up there, like those airport books that are just kind of like thoughts <laughs> and leadership and interviews. I wanted to give people lots of data because leaders do not have time to just be hopping around these different platforms without some clear pathways and strategies. It is not a recipe to follow rather than examples like Walter, where you can look to and be inspired from, as well as have a, a more clear direction and purpose about why you'd use Twitter or what the heck you'd do on TikTok. Um, and so the research expanded to a uh, quantitative study of 420 higher ed professionals and how they are navigating and showing up on social media, as well as hundreds of observations and interviews, especially that came out in the features of the book that was a lot more storytelling. Um, because again, someone can tell you all day, go on this tool, do this thing, but to have more meaning, we need real people with real examples so we can discern our own place because there is no right or wrong way to do this. And there also is no formalized requirement yet for a president to show up. Um, what my book calls for is authenticity and for values. And I do think that will help leaders find um, a stronger ROI not just like watching vanity metrics, but to actually see, okay, these are the values of my institution and myself. And that is why I would be on this platform and why I would do this type of 
content. I mean, even for, and I don't want to start to, to talk about Walter's story, but for his own Twitter handle, being like the to know the rationale behind that and the story behind that is, is meaningful for folks to understand. Even what we put in our um, bios, it adds meaning to the platforms and why individuals would connect with us and really find meaning behind it. The reason why I put in exercises is because I'm an educator. I came from a kindergarten teacher where, you know, I was cutting out exercises at the age of four. And I know we need experiential experiences in order for transformation and discernment, especially within leadership. So I'm sure there's going to be plenty of people that just breeze through the book and like look at the exercises and jump on. That's totally fine. But at least you can sit with some questions to think about like, well, what was my very first experience in technology? And, and do I is, does that impact how I look at some of these tools today? Or is there a leadership theory that without even thinking about social media has informed my life and how I build teams and show up no matter where? How could I have that show up in, in digital spaces? So to talk about the journey, it was over four years. The edit editing process was um, a doozy. Um, and also platforms changed constantly as well as people's positions. So that was also to the very last minute trying to change what person had changed to what institution. And um, is there any talk of COVID in the book? No, because I submitted it the week before we went into lockdown. <laughs> and I hope you'll find actually that's a re relieving to read the book and not to, you know, maybe uh, see that that language we hear over and over, but it is still very, very applicable um, despite that. <laughs> I, I feel like there should be some in these unprecedented times kind of joke inserted right here. Walter, what made you want to participate with Josie's book? Um, and could you tell us a little bit about your social media history for those who aren't as familiar with digital communications? Yeah, I, I became a president in 2004. Um, I became president of Philander Smith College in Little Rock. And um, it's a very small school at the time, had oh, less than 900 students. And when I got there, I talked to people in the community to say, you know, what is the school known for? And they really talked about these new buildings. They had gotten two really big grants. They had some really nice new buildings on campus. They had a great choir. And I was like, yeah, but that doesn't say higher education. That means you got nice buildings and a choir. So, you know, how do we really start to understand the history of the institution and tell a different kind of narrative so that people would value the institution because when I start looking at certain people that came out of that institution, people like the first black surgeon general, Joyce Elders, that is located literally one mile down the street from Central High School and the Little Rock Nine actually came to that campus to be tutored by Philander Smith faculty and students. When you started really telling those stories, it was like, wow, there's a really robust history of the institution um, that exists, um, but we weren't able to, you know, get that message out. The other thing that was happening really interesting at that time is that the University of Central Arkansas had a president who was rumored to be a former state senator and was thinking about running for governor. And they were spending a million dollars a year on ads locally on television. And so anytime I went to the gym and I went every day, no matter when I went, within that hour I was on a treadmill, I always saw a UCA commercial. He was on all of them. So it was it was he was letting you know I'm, I'm getting this name recognition out in my face because I'm going to run for governor. Now, he has some other issues later. and He ended up leaving and I think he's at a school in Florida now. But it was like, how do you even get a message out when, you know, you have this 
you know, what Seth Godin calls interruption marketing. It's just everywhere all the time. And so for me, social media became the, the level playing field. I started with a blog. I was like, this is a way I can start telling the story and get people to follow what's going on. And Facebook became a way that I could start sharing because it starts in 2004. So that's right when I started. So my entire presidency goes along with the advent of social media. So I had a blog. I was using Facebook to post pictures. We had a great photographer of events. So then students could share, they could tag. And particularly when we had different guest comfort speakers and celebrities, you know, they would tag it and all their friends saw it and their parents saw it. So then you start to generate this buzz. And then I got to Twitter in uh, 2009, I think it was. And I was hesitant. I was like, I have a blog. What do I need a micro blog? And that's the funniest thing now, because our director of communication at the time kept dragging me like, you need to do Twitter. And I was like, no, I am not doing Twitter. And she had a consultant come talk to me. And I was like, no. And so I finally got on the Twitter. So I just kept adding these platforms to Instagram and I use them a little bit differently. But so my entire presidency, I, I haven't really known the presidency without social media. And as different platforms have evolved, I've been able to add them as, as I choose. Some I don't use. I mean, I have, you know, accounts on different uh, platforms I don't use. But then I'm now I'm protecting, you know, the whole hip hop prayers moniker so that nobody else uses. So some of that is just protecting that entire brand. But so that's how I sort of got involved. And so for me, being the president of a small institution that doesn't have the kind of big book marketing resources, this was a way to level the playing field. And it's it still works today. I always, I teach people here in Louisiana. I say, I have three times as many followers as the president of LSU. They have 40,000 students. I have 1,200. I, you know, I have many more media people that follow me than the president of LSU. It's level the playing field. So I can get as much attention and it helps drive resources to the institution. Um, and I can do it for free. So I work it into my daily schedule. If I get a Google News alert that says Dillard is something that's really good, I click it. I click the little Twitter icon. I click the Facebook icon. I click the LinkedIn icon. Boom, I'm done. I'm back to work. I mean, I'm in and out of social media all day long because for me, it's sharing that information. And then particularly for we're doing an alumni call. We're doing several this this month, but they love it because now I get a chance to celebrate some alum that probably nobody knows about that just got this major appointment. So they see their institution is blowing them up on social media. That's a great thing. It, it, you know, it endears them to the institution. You start to really generate, you know, new givers that kind of way. So it just makes a lot of sense for me. Like I said, for a small institution that you're not going to have a multi-million dollar ad buy. Uh, and really, once again, that's more of that interruption. I'm, I'm a big disciple of Seth Godin. He talks about this interruption marketing versus permission marketing. And this, I'm really into the permission marketing. If I'm telling a really good story, people will tell that story for me. And so it's not just saying, let's tell our story and pay money to tell a story. Let's tell a great story so that other people say, I want to tell your story. So that's the way I've used social media to help other people tell our story and to do it for free. It's a significant way that you've built community. And, and I do appreciate the fact that you mentioned that you immediately claim your identity on any of the platforms, whether or not you're actually using them, because I, I think that presence staking is very important. And when you have that developed brand, I know in my positions, I've urged my executive leadership frequently to take a look at hip hop prez on Twitter when I'm trying to convince them that that this is something that they need to explore. Um, and, and I point them in your direction. So knowing that on any platform, I can point them in that direction and say, if he's active, this will be his moniker is incredibly helpful. Um, and 2004, Josie, what is the importance of early adoption? 
when our leaders are staking out their their turf in social media? Well, I've always looked um, as a researcher and practitioner for social proof. It's why I started my podcast and Walter was one of my early guests to the book, to the research. We know in academia, like we look to scholarship and we look to uh, some traditions. So I wanted to feature in that early research, those that were doing it to be able to to talk to other leaders about them, as well as grad students and new professionals who were navigating through their own journey in their digital presence. Um, because examples can be really powerful that like Walter said, then you can have stories. And I loved the combination of both using it for influence and am- amplification, but also the benefit of access and relationships, connecting those two strategies because I do think we are redefining leadership in higher ed and many other industries where I've presented, like you said, to your executive teams, my framework and examples, and they reflect back, this is completely goes against all the mentorship I received my entire career to be accessible and to be open. And, um, and so for some, not for all this, this, while social can seem simple, it actually is quite significant. Some, shifts and how we're asking leaders to show up. Which brings me to another thing. I actually underlined it and then I wrote it on a sticky note and put it on my computer monitor as I do with things that I, I really like to read. Um, in the chapter, one sentence that that stuck with me or a phrase really was people first, platform second. Um, and as somebody who comes from a rhetorical background in graduate work, um, that echoes with me because we always look to audience first. And, and that's really what you're you're meeting the needs of. There is the people that you're talking to. And then, you know, you use the best tool to reach them. Uh, can you explain um, how, Josie, we should center this in our strategy? So this, of course, in many higher ed conferences and books, there's semicolons after the title. So it's digital leadership in higher ed, purposeful social media in a connected world. And purpose is something that uh, in leadership and in social strategy just came up over and over again for just my own values, but also in the research that um, we have to stay centered on those that we serve um, because unfortunately what happens is we start to do these dances to different platforms and different strategies um, where we need to prioritize the people and our purpose before we jump to platforms and production. Um, as I get asked often, well, what tools should I be on and what's like, you know, the latest tips and tricks. I'm like, okay, those are fine. And those are going to change tomorrow. <laughs> Let's first get really focused on who you actually want to engage with. And it's reversed to who is actually on Twitter. You might want a certain population on that tool, but who's actually receiving you and connecting with you there. Um, and to know who you're actually connecting with on that, on that platform. Walter, which platform do you think best serves you and your audience for connecting? Uh, it's definitely Twitter. I mean, we've um, done some studies for even for our campus. We're a Twitter campus. Our students really haven't done a lot with, you know, TikTok. Um, but and like I said, I'll, I'd say I will segment it, too, because it depends on the population for, for students, for media type people, for other higher ed people, sometimes general audience. Twitter is good. Facebook, that demographic skews a little older. I can hit a lot of our parents you know, to get them information, Facebook is a place to go. And I'll get messages from parents 
even direct messages on Facebook, or students having some difficulties, parents send a note, or sometimes you just sort of see how we had a parent that was, you know, having an issue with the student and they posted their frustration and one of my assistants saw it and sent it to me and I just reached out to the parent, you know, on Facebook, like, hey, let's, you know, and then we we're able to have a conversation, which, you know, when, when Josie talks about, you know, it's people first, not the platform. I think a lot of times in our culture, uh, people rely too much on the platform and sometimes the platform isn't a good way to um, really have a, the conversation. So she had a level of frustration that when we had a, a, the conversation, the conversation was robust. It was good. I mean, she felt good about it. Uh, and it wasn't just sort of like, you know, I'm talking to an administrator or the president. We were having a conversation as two parents. And that's a different kind of conversation. So even I try to tell our students, if you're frustrated about something, and I mean, you just sort of see, I mean, Twitter becomes a bit for everything, particularly I, I would hate to be in the airline business because anybody who loses a bag, you know about it because they're blowing up Twitter. But I mean, whenever the power goes out, they're beating up on them, the energy company. And so Twitter does have sometimes this sort of negative energy that is sort of like, ah, I'm just going to complain, complain, complain. And sometimes I tell a student, it's like, why would you put that on Twitter, Twitter when you have my number? So it becomes easier then to sort of have this performative outrage versus having the conversation. And so I think one of the things I worry about is that people are losing the ability to have real conversations. And so that's that's the, the challenge with it, which is why like every year around Lent, once Ash Wednesday starts, I'm off social media until Easter. I have to just take a, and I, I look forward to that every year because it's just a, a time for me just to almost detoxify some of the stuff. I mean, I'll read my, my feeds on, well, I don't even read the feed on Sundays, I'll post to say, here are things that are going on or news stories or those kind of things, but I'm gonna read my feeds for six weeks. Uh, and that's how I balance it. And I, I always look forward to that too. So it's a it's a delicate balancing act, uh, but I, I try to use it as a tool, particularly with students. I'd rather talk to them in person. And so it's like, if I have to send you a direct message on Twitter to say, hey, when are you free, come see me? I'd rather do that. So I try to use it as a tool and not for that to be the end all be all of the conversation. It becomes, you know, an avenue for the more robust conversation, which will happen in person, you know, um, some kind of platform like this, those kinds of things. I think one of the reasons, though, that your platforms are so successful with you reaching out to these one on one relationships is that your social media presence is so very authentic. It is you posting. Yeah. Um, and I know that that's important to you. So could you speak a little bit to that when you decided that the only person ever putting material out from Hip Hop Prez was going to be Walter? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if it was a conscious decision. It just seemed like that was a way to do it. That, I mean, it wasn't based on any studies. I mean, I've read people talk about it. Santa Ono has talked about you know, how he does his, and I mean, he does the vast majority, but it wasn't, I wasn't being strategic. I feel like that was just the only way to do it. Uh, I'm, I'm a low maintenance type person anyway. So, I mean, that's part of it. So, if, you know, if somebody says, well, hey, I need to meet with you. Let me get with your staff. And I, one of my assistants was teasing me like, yeah, he didn't let us do anything. Cause I'm like, well, why am I going to send somebody to you to schedule something for me when I can just as easily look at my calendar and say, all right, it's free. Let's plug it in and keep moving. That's, it's like, that's an extra step. It's just like, why, why do I need the extra steps? Let's cut down on the steps. Uh, so I'm just, I'm, I'm low maintenance. So I just, you know, I, I do a lot. So the same thing. And if somebody gets mad about something that's on my feed, hell, I did it. I mean, it's, it is no question. It's, I posted it. It's me authentically. Uh, and that's just, I, that's just how I am. 
I don't think I was I wasn't being strategic or thoughtful. This is just who I am as a person. So I I never when I sort of found out that people had other people posting for them, I was like, really? This never just was a thought. Josie, though, for those of us on campus who are trying to convince our leadership to have this social media presence um, and know from their schedules or perhaps they're just not totally comfortable in those mediums quite yet, how do we um, establish authenticity when there's shared governance of an account? Yeah, there are different models to look to from independent to hybrid and the list goes on. Um, I do think it really depends on who your executive is and the realities and demands of their position as well as their skill level. And so I get a lot of, you know, like I can't be Walter like that. You know, I don't feel like his, his presence or his style is me. And so I was like, well, good. You aren't him. (laughs) Like let's figure out the strategy that will work for you. Um, so we are seeing a lot more presidents and chancellors having, um, other cooks in the kitchen for their strategy. The only thing that bums me out is I start to see their accounts look like institutional accounts, that they become a bit more like billboards and we have so much to celebrate. Um, But can I just see a little bit more of your voice? And this is where if you're going to have other cooks in your kitchen, they have to know what ingredients you love. Do you drink coffee or tea or latte with foam? Or I'm I'm actually serious like about those details about your life. Um, Because I encourage in the book, personalization. I don't use like what's personal, what's professional. How can we humanize your platforms? Because you're a human who want to connect with other people. So we have the people that support your social may need to know way more about you than you might reveal to others. Not that they're going to put that out on social media, but they are representing you as a person who happens to be in a position, again, that wants to connect with real people, especially on a platform like Instagram, where we are visually representing who you are and those moments and emotions. So they may also need more access to your calendar. Honestly, if they could have a text message relationship with you for like in the moment updates, they, that kind of access I do think is, is necessary, especially if you're going to give so much control over And then finally, to be able to attend things, uh, whether that now is in Zoom meetings or events, to capture photos, to capture quotes, and to be that person. Because a lot of these platforms, it is uh, a benefit to be able to be very timely in what what we post. What I would encourage if someone's listening and has been tasked to support that is just to start really slow on one platform um, and to prioritize building the relationship with that leader as much as the, the presence and the strategy on that platform. And I do think it is possible when you work that closely together and you have that kind of personal relationship to be able to anticipate. Um, when I was at Holy Family, our president there, Sister Maureen and I used to joke, we could never remember who actually wrote the thing that was coming from her because we we collaborated so much on those communications in the beginning that there was that very strong sense of shared voice if it was a communication from her as president. Um, so I think that that's excellently put, like, and especially if you're doing social media, having a texting relationship like that, you get a sense of the cadence and, and all of that. Um, and you're making sure that, that nothing is being posted without, um, ownership, even if you're helping (laughs) that along. 
Let's talk a little bit about weathering both fair and foul climates, um, because I know one of the pushbacks I've gotten over the course of my career when I urge executives forward is that, you know, if, if you're going public like this, you're really opening yourself up in ways that perhaps leadership is not used to um, and, and being so very accessible to the public. So what are some of the trying consequences of being so public, but why is it worth it? Walter, you want to start us out with that? Yeah, well, you know, one of the things I think even in a conversation that Josie and I have for uh, a conference, and I try to tell presidents in particular that even if you aren't on social media, you are. <laughs> it mean, you don't have to have an account. You're on social media. Your name is going to be mentioned. So you might as well be able to shape a narrative by the things that you, you, you know, share on social media that will help other people sort of support what you're doing. So, I mean, for example, this is recently, um, I was interviewed for the Wall Street Journal and talking about HBCU with the Trump administration. And someone interpreted as I was saying that I agree with the president when he made the statement that he saved HBCUs. And my complete Twitter feed is completely against that. I've got like long threads providing documents how this didn't happen. And so someone tried to start and say, there he is saying blah, blah, blah. And then I had a parent of a current student just go in on this person, just and they just so I didn't have to say anything because they're just like, you're not paying attention to what this guy's look at all of his. What are you talking about? And so the person ended up having to delete that tweet because he just was relentless. So it's like it just helps you to sort of define who you are in that space, because if you're not in that space, somebody will define you for you. So I think it's important just to be engaged if you're in that position, because like I said, you don't have to have a Twitter account. Your name will be mentioned whether you're on there or not. So it, at least they have some balance. I mean, it, yeah, there are going to be times when people, they'll at you and, you know, they can say ugly things and either you mute them. I don't like to block. I like to mute because when you mute, they don't even know that you're not paying attention. So that's to me the funniest thing to do. When you block, you give people a chance to be outraged. Oh, this person blocked me. I don't block. I just mute. So it's like you don't even exist. And you go on. I mean, you just so that's I mean, that's just part of it. So, I mean, there, that, it is a, the, the messy part that does exist. But I still think the pros outweigh the cons. And you don't have to be on it all the time. And like I said, you get to a point where you have to decide how you engage with those. I mean, I've been able to particularly during this election season, I've been able to engage with people. I have very different philosophical points of view from. But do it in a respectful manner that people have really appreciated that. And you've heard people, I've had people I disagree with say, look, I'm going to ask you this because I believe you're a straight shooter. To me, that's the highest compliment because they know we don't agree. So I think there's a way to model some of that, which is what I try to do. It doesn't have to be, you know, vitriol all the time, which is what we see. So that's, I think that's part of it. Uh, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's going to be messy sometimes, but just because you're not on there don't, doesn't mean that you're not on there. You're being talked about whether you have an account or not. So you might as well get in the game and at least help define who you are so people don't define you for yourself. That's as simple as I can put it. I, I just think it's another example of how uh, leadership is being redefined or what is being asked of leaders, both in 
the access of information and then their communities access to them. What used to be maybe water cooler talk that you wouldn't hear in your boardroom is now in your face and on your screen. So I love the examples that Walter shared of things that he does both for uh, like, let's say self care about logging off on Lent um, as well as when you choose to um, activate or not on Twitter. Also such a great example. If you build relationships online, your people will have your back. They'll find that tweet that he posed, that thread of like, no, actually, this is this is what he said. And, and you don't even have to do that work for you so that it will pay off dividends if you really have been doing that. So it is challenging and, and change already in many leaders and in just society. Like we are we are exhausted. So I think another piece of asking leaders to show up on social is mental health. And that is why I have seen some executives, this is the one place that maybe they do have some social support that can vet a little bit of the replies and the comments. So if it gets to a point where it is impacting your mental health so much that you have someone else doing some social listening for you to know which ones you have to act upon. And maybe that's in just certain seasons, but you you have to know like kind of your own uh, resiliency in some of these platforms, but also not to run and hide when your community is calling and asking for Honesty. I I think what we saw early in the summer and even today when you put out these press releases that feel like a robot wrote them, I'm not surprised that your students, alumni and, and staff and faculty are pushing back. So, again, redefining leadership. Can you speak like a human? It's just a little bit like I think your community will receive that a lot more when in times of, of struggle. Yeah, I always find these concrete examples to be really helpful in my own professional process, um, and I hope that our audience finds them helpful too. Um, We've talked about some kind of short-term wins when your community comes to support you in situations. Can we talk a little bit more about long-term evolution? One of the gems in that chapter was leverage your influence to transform your community. I loved this concept, but when you're talking about transformation, we're not necessarily talking about blips in time or reaction to uh, a singular article or this, but ways that having this consistent public presence does truly transform what you're doing within your institution. I'd love to hear from from both of you, Walter, things that have happened in your own experience. Josie, um, some examples from the scope of your book that perhaps also don't lean on the presidential authority, but in other leadership roles on campus. Well, I love I think it's important that we also are talking about not just uh, presidents and campus executives as um as you do see a variety of different styles and strategies being enacted throughout the field. And at heart, I'm also a digital community builder. So I love to see uh, higher ed pros organically building community uh, officially and unofficially. So one of those people in the book, Jenny L. Strother, she is the vice president uh, of enrollment and she's the co-founder of EM Chat a chat on Twitter started years and years and years ago. And she's very much driven through authentic leadership and she's calling in her community, especially, I think it was a year or two ago when all of the news was 
out about the scandals and enrollment, um, it, you know, like through the Hollywood parents. And I mean, she was always showing up day after day, asking discerning and challenging questions of the community on Twitter. Um, but again, just like being driven to build that community on Twitter for enrollment pros. I think the other example, she's an executive director at UCLA, LaTanya Reese Miles. She's built a Facebook group called um, Empowering First Generation College Students. As a first-gen student herself and a researcher on it, she's um, grown 5,400 uh, professionals as well as first-gen students to come together on Facebook. The platform itself has featured her Facebook group in some of their um, promotions. Um, and so both of those have really specific audiences who they want to build community for and a purpose behind them uh, for connections. So even when we take off positions, we can have deeper purposes beyond our institutions that I, I'm excited to feature folks like that. Yeah, I, you know, I'm just trying to think of just in terms of long-term um impacts for me? I don't know. It's, it's a difficult question because I think a lot of the relationships that are built uh, are really with those individuals. You, you try to um, get them connected to an institution, but, you know, invariably it comes down to those personal relationships and, and those sometimes are not transferable. Um, so I think more and more people have to be engaged in the space to develop those relationships um, because at some point in time, you know, when I leave Dillard, it's not to say that those relationships stay here. Those relationships go with me. And so um, you've got to have lots of people. So as Joseph says, it's not just at the presidential level. You have to have people who are developing relationships all throughout an organization that can leverage those relationships for that institution during that point in time that they're there. Because when that person leaves, those relationships leave too. Um, and in many cases, there might be some that become longstanding and that kind of thing. The key relationships that you want to build are people who naturally have an affinity to that institution. So if I can reconnect alums to the institution, those will be long permanent relationships that you want to, to continue to develop. Um, so that's, you know, that's, that's a good question. I'm still thinking more about it, but um, that's sort of how I see it. And, you know, it's, and I mean, that's a challenge when you look at most, if you have a, a president particularly that has a really strong social media presence, they have many more followers in the institutions. I mean, it's not because people follow people. They want to deal with the people's story, not just the institution. Uh, and so that's that's always a challenge. So I laugh a little bit. Some I love my marketing and communication colleagues, but um, sometimes we can um, want to own platforms and have some control because there's so much we can't control like many other accounts out there. Um, and I think Walter just um, hit on the head about uh, at having leaders educating and, and getting their platforms amplified, I would say let go um, of the idea that you're always going to own that tool, that you are helping a person in a position, not a brand, or that's going to stay with the institution because it is about the relationships. And I've seen plenty of presidents and vice presidents start a new account elsewhere because that was their own choice. But I think we're still kind of figuring out the terms and conditions like hip hop press is going to go with him wherever. Right. right. <laughs> that, 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 and that's very clear. And sometimes we see these interesting negotiations between com and executive cabinets about who owns what and in platforms and things. And I would just like 
let down those pieces and let it really just be that person and, and allow it to be for what it is, because it really needs to be about those relationships, which are so key to this entire equation. Yeah. Yeah. Push, yeah, push comes to serve that, you know, some things just said, you know, use your name. You just use your name. You take that with you. It doesn't have to be something special, but yeah, you know, I'm asked a lot. Well, you know, should your, should your Twitter handle be, you know, Dillard President number seven? No, no, because I'm not. I mean, I, I would always be that. But if I'm president somewhere else, why would I keep using that account? So it's better to have something that is, you know, it is that that relationship changes. So I know there are some places like Josie said, they have those conversations. But I, I'm not a fan of using that institution because and particularly Generation X and, and younger, we work multiple places. So to be linked to a place that we're not going to retire from in 25 years with a gold watch doesn't make any sense. Well, and it's much different than if you have a student social media ambassador. You want that separate handle for because you want to make sure that you're reminding them and their audience that in this particular instance, they are representing their institution. But when we are talking about leaders who do move beyond institutions, Marcom needs to be very cognizant. It's value added. When you have somebody coming in with their own social media presence, it's value added. It's just one more way to reach your constituents. You still can have your institutional account that get out that information. But how fantastic is it if you have somebody who's known um, in their own right on social media? Let's talk about models that we follow. Walter, who are some other um, leaders on social media that you look to as peers and as innovators who have ways of using social media to aspire to? Hmm. When he was at the University of Cincinnati, for me, it was Santa Ono because it was interesting to sort of see how he used it to expand his presence at a place that had 40,000 students. So that was always interesting to me. That was always in the back of my head. If I ever became a president of an institution big like that, he sort of figured out how to do it the best way. So from, from that perspective, I look at him. Pat McGuire at Trinity is sort of my kindred spirit because she says what's on her mind. She doesn't care. She's just throwing flames. There's a, a group of people who are sort of radical in that presidential role that sometimes just don't give a damn. And she, she's one of them. She's good at it too. So, I mean, I watch what she says that she's out there. And so a, there are a range of people that I look at in terms of how they leverage. I mean, I look at how, you know, Michael Sorrell does a good job leveraging, showing the partnerships that they're building with the institution that are broader. But I mean, I just look at a lot of people in terms of how they use it you know, just to, just to sort of see it. And people, you know, Joseph said this earlier, people have different styles. What's going to be comfortable for me is not going to be comfortable for other people. So as long as people are within their skin, but I think it, as long as it shows that it's authentic, I think those are the ones that sort of stand out to me. You know, I get excited about those kinds of things, but, you know, I probably take from lots of different people and not just within, you know, higher education. I, you know, I, I follow a variety of accounts just to sort of see the kinds of things that people are sharing and how they're doing it and that kind of thing. So I, just, I pay attention to a lot, but I, I, I like what I do. I just, if, I mean, it fits me. So I'm, I'm sort of good in my skin too. It's like, this is what works for me and I just go with it. When I think that's in the book, um, why I use leadership and why I use discernment is because you kind of do have to sit in your own skin to sort out what, how you define authenticity. If that were even Fits with you because there's some power and privilege potentially even with that. Um, you could use the word real, uh, genuine, uh, honestly, whatever helps you sleep at night. <laughs> like if you're feeling like the way you're showing up on Instagram is just 
you're not feeling it. Pay attention to that. And that is why I love to give so many people examples in the book and elsewhere of who's out there uh, watching Santa's journey from his first his presidency now up in Canada like you have an example of one model of how a president made a transition even you know now to work in a different country I mean I think we've seen a lot of HBCU presidents like fully leaning in and being active if you want to work at an HBCU or if you know that sure path like hone in on those presidents and those vice presidents. They are laying the groundwork for you of what might be expected or role models and mentors. Also, don't be scared to to DM some of these folks with value um, and ask for a phone call or just let them know, like, thank you for contributing or that post. Like, that was really meaningful to me. I've also loved to see uh, community college leaders taking to these platforms, I think, for very similar reasons, limited resources with marketing, um, but also a unified message amongst um, community college. So I really enjoyed Daria Willis. She's the president of Everett Community College. She started blogging her year as her first presidency as a community college president. Um, and she's on all kinds of different visual platforms like uh, like Instagram. And then Steve Robinson, he's a new president at Lansing Community College. He's got podcasts. So I also like to look at how are people creating different kinds of content, not just who are on Twitter. I think we also know Twitter's very busy. <laughs> You might need to look at how can you tell the story in other ways. So those are a couple of cool examples for me. And I also want to share people who don't have a lot of followers, but I find have a lot of heart. So Mamta Akapati, she's the vice president now at Penn. And she writes these like full of heart LinkedIn blogs that just any human in higher ed needs to read (laughs) right now, but also shows up that same way on Facebook. Mordecai Brownlee, he's at St. Philip's College, vice president there, and he's been making YouTube videos. So I'm also excited about different types of content to connect with community. But I also have tons of Twitter lists that people are just trying to quickly find women executives, community college. I mean, and I know Walter has an HBCU Twitter list too. Like those would be great to add for folks to find some ones again that fit for you or you follow follow folks that you would never use social media that way, but also just be able to learn through social listening how they're showing up. Perfect. As we draw this episode to a close, if you haven't listened to us previously, I always like to ask a question that is not directly related to our professional endeavors, but maybe tangentially related to the people at hand. Um, And I think you'll figure out where this one comes from. I'd like to ask each of you, who's a music artist that more of us should be listening to right now? So I'll start. I'm going to use one of our our local musicians here in New Orleans. His name is D1. He's a hip hop artist, but his background is really comes out of religion and faith. I teach a class on hip hop, sex, gender, and ethical behavior. He comes to class pretty regularly as a guest, but uh, he's been somebody who's really been able to, to bridge that gap to talk about some of those issues in a way that doesn't sound like sometimes people say hip hop and you know Christian music, it doesn't really sound as good. The production isn't as good, but I mean, very thoughtful and just his whole background. He went to LSU, he graduated, he taught school. So, I mean, he's a different kind of guy. He made a song about, you know, paying off his student loans called Sally Maybach. 
Because my wife is like, when she pays off our student loans, we're gonna have a Sally Maybach party. I mean, it's you know, so it's just a play on the words. So this luxury car, you know, Maybach, and then Sally May. So it's just a creative guy. So I, I D one is like one of my. He's like my little brother. So I, I have to talk about D one. I love that. You actually teach the class, right? Oh, yeah. Of hip hop. So. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's, yeah. It's, I yeah. got to start planning for uh, this spring, uh, but I, I normally get a range of guests that come. I mean, I had to do a lot of it last spring virtually, which was still great. I mean, I had some really good artists and uh, entertainment journalists. I mean, we deal with a range of subjects. So, you know, in December, I'll start plotting out my course in terms of how I want to cover it. But yeah. So I'm a small town country girl from Wyoming. Um, and this the album that like I played every cross-country trip to college was the Dixie Chicks. Um, and I love their story and their transformation for me now as an adult to the Chicks, yeah. their album and their song, March. Like if you just need an anthem right now. It's a banger. <laughs> yes, that'll that'll do it. I would say their version of the uh, national anthem is, is I, I heard them recently. I was like, wow. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. I love it. Where can our audience find you if they'd like to continue the conversation? Uh, so on the socials, I'm at Josie Alquist and my website's JosieAlquist.com. At Hip Hop Press, pretty much everywhere you go. It's either that or you see my name, Walter Kimbrough, uh, like on Facebook and LinkedIn. But those are only two places you'll, you'll find. All right, great. So that's the end of this episode. Uh, thanks to both of you so much for taking your time to join us today. And we're looking forward to more great conversations with higher ed thought leaders in the weeks and months to come. If you'd like to explore our topic further, please feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at hdotchell.